Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm D.P. Lyle, your host. This is um, Toxicology, Part 2. We've already seen uh, in Part 1 some things about what the forensic toxicologist must do and how he collects samples, cause and manner of death, and things like that. But let's talk this time more about the actual testing procedures. In other words, what does the forensic toxicologist do, and how does he help in criminal investigations? Um. One of the biggest problems that the toxicologist has is that there are literally countless thousands of drugs out there, chemicals, and everyone is different. I mean, what makes a chemical a chemical is its structure. And if it's got a change in that structure, then it's not that chemical, it's something else. In other words, salt is sodium chloride. If you do anything else, you add anything to it, you change either the sodium or the chloride, it's no longer salt. So to identify any of these things, you must know their chemical structure and you must have a way of getting to that. Now, anything can be analyzed. Every chemical has a fingerprint. Every chemical known to man can be identified. Well, fine. That sounds easy. Well, here's the problem. Toxicological testing can be extremely time-consuming and very expensive. You just can't afford to do that. You can't afford to test everything on every victim. You can't take a blood sample from a deceased person and give it to the toxicologist and say, Hey, Joe, find everything in there. Well, it would take him months and cost countless tens of thousands of dollars. That's not going to happen. So what they developed is a two-tiered system. One are the presumptive tests or screening tests, and the other are the confirmatory tests. Now, a good screening test is rapid and cheap and easy to do, and what it does is it identifies a group or class of of chemicals, in other words, amphetamines or sedatives or opiates, uh, benzodiazepines, it 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 identifies a group. First, it identifies whether something's present or not, any of these products. In other words, if you think someone uh, has been using crystal meth, but you do a screening test and there's no amphetamines in there, then you've pretty much ruled that out and you got to look for something else. You know, maybe cocaine is the erratic behavior, maybe PCP, uh, but something else to account for the erratic behavior um, and the hyped up nature of the, of the person. Uh, if, um, so these screens, these presumptive tests eliminate certain classes of drugs and include other classes of drugs. And then the more expensive and time consuming confirmatory testing can be done. Now for screening tests, they use, they use blood, they use breath in the case of alcohol, uh, they use urine, uh, They don't usually take tissue samples from living people, but from the deceased, they'll take tissue samples, particularly liver and whatnot, and they will do screening studies to see if, uh, if, if any of these classes of drugs are present. Now, a lot of these are colorimetric tests. In other words, you, you take the sample, you add some other chemical to it, and you see if it changes color. And if you read either Forensics for Dummies or How Done It Forensics, all these tests, the different ones are, 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 are 
described there, what the color change is, what they test for, et cetera, et cetera. But we won't get into that here because it's time consuming and confusing. Uh, other tests use immunoassays. In other words, they build antibodies to certain drugs, and then they will react with that when that drug's present and create a, a reaction that can be identified. Others are chromatographic. In other words, they, they, they draw graphs of the amount of a certain chemical, and there's both thin layer and gas chromatography, which is GC in the GC forward slash MS we'll talk about. Uh, and gas chromatography can be a screening test. It also is part of the uh, definitive testing. And then ultraviolet spectroscopy also can be a screening test. It can also be part of the confirmatory testing. So there's a lot of different approaches that the forensic toxicologist can use. But at the end of the day, remember, a screen is to eliminate many classes of drugs and narrow the field. So that now when he starts looking for the drug that may have been caused the cause of the death or involved in the death in some way, he, the toxicologist can focus attention to the proper area rather than just the shotgun approach. That, as I said, is very time consuming and expensive. So what is a typical drug screen involved? Now, these are used in the hospitals. We use them if someone comes in uh, confused, disoriented, or in a coma uh, in the hospital. One of the things you do, besides checking their blood sugar, is you, 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 you test for drugs, and you do a drug screen. Now, you can get that back in the emergency room in less than an hour. The toxicologist in the morgue can also do the same thing if need be. Obviously, time's less critical in the morgue than it is in the emergency room, but, but these tests are very quick. So what do they use the screen for? Well, aspirin is one of them we do in the hospital for sure. Go figure. But uh, it, it's part of it, and I'll throw that out there. But there's alcohol. Obviously, they screen for alcohol, the various alcohols. Um, ethanol, obviously, the drinking alcohol, but also methanol, isopropyl. So it will look for any of the alcohols to see if they're present, which if someone has died, uh, you, you got to consider alcohol uh, poisoning. You know, say it's a college kid found in the dorm. Um, acids, an acid screen detects certain acidic compounds, which are like aspirin and barbiturates. Barbiturates aren't used as much now as they used to be back in the 70s and 80s, but they're still around. Uh, the alkali screen, it's called, tests for things like tranquilizers, synthetic narcotics, and antidepressants. Uh, benzodiazepines and valiums and you know the, and the Xanaxes of the world, things like that. Then there's the narcotic screen. And obviously this checks for opiates, you know, cocaine, methadone, things like that. Some of these are synthetic, some are sim semi-synthetic, and some are more natural. And we'll talk about those later in, in the next lecture. Um, so you've got a screen that looks for alcohol and sedatives and amphetamines and cocaine and all of these things, and it can be done very quickly. So you can eliminate many of these classes very quickly and now focus your attention. So let's say you do a, a drug screen. It comes back negative for alcohol and negative for barbiturates and, and negative for amphetamines, but positive for opiates. Well, now you've got to take it a step further and now start using more confirmatory tests to see which opiate it is. Or it could be that it's negative for everything except amphetamines. 
Well, is this a person who's taking Sudafed for a head cold or using crystal meth? Well, they both would be positive in an amphetamine screen, but you can see the difference. So they have to test for the actual amphetamine that is present. It makes a big difference. Obviously, it's the difference between treating a head cold and having a good time with your crystal meth buddies. So the confirmatory tests um, are often mass spectroscopy along with either gas chromatography or gas chromatography along with infrared spectroscopy. It's usually a two-tiered testing system there. But what do these things do? They give you a chemical fingerprint of the chemical itself. In other words, what's the structure of the chemical? As I said before, each element, each chemical on Earth has its own fingerprint. If you change it in some way, it's not that chemical anymore. It's something else. So they're pretty definitive in their diagnosis and their determination of what this chemical structure is, and therefore it's got a name. Cyanide is cyanide. Arsenic is arsenic. Um, a good confirmatory test must possess two things, sensitivity and specificity. Now, what does that mean? Sensitivity means is how sensitive is it to determining the presence of, of, the, of the chemical in question. In other words, is it as close to 100% as possible saying, yes, this is present, or no, it's not. Because you have to, that's the first answer. Is it present? And if you've got to be accurate in saying yes or no. The second is specificity. How specific is this test for this particular chemical? Is it kind of, sort of? Could be this, that, this, that, this, that. Could be a whole group of them. Or is, no, this is specifically the one we're looking for. So it must know that it's present. Any testing must prove that this chemical is present and that it is this specific chemical. Well, gas chromatography and mass spectroscopy, as I told you, do that. A GC forward MS, you've seen it written that way before. It will give you the actual fingerprint of the chemical in question and is highly accurate. It's expensive, it's time consuming, and that's why you have the confirmatory test, you have the uh, screening test, and then you have the confirmatory test. Okay, fine. So what do you do with all this? What's the forensic toxicologist and the ME, how are they going to look at all this stuff and make sense out of it? How are they going to determine um, that this chemical was involved in the death? Well, first thing you're going to look at is the route of entry. Let's say that uh, someone, I talked about this in the previous lecture, someone has an injection site, but it's in a place that, that they wouldn't normally do it. Well, that will change how they're going to interpret the finding of that drug in the body, whether it was self-administered or administered by another hand. Also, they want to look at the place where the drug is most concentrated. Now, sure, the bioavailability that I talked about in the first talk on this, in other words, the blood relates more to the action. But if you're looking for the presence of the drug, you will look at an injection site 
and you're, you're trying to identify a drug and you look at the stomach contents, for example. So if all these undigested or partially digested pills are in the stomach, well, now you know at least this person ingested a handful of Xanax. If you see an injection site and, and, and time has passed and you're not sure that the blood levels and the urine levels and all the other things are going to help, you can actually excise the tissues around the injection site because when you inject something into the tissues, a lot of it seeps out and it kind of stays there and it doesn't get swept into the bloodstream and goes through all the metabolic changes that go on there, the breakdown products I talked about last time, but it's a more concentrated right there at the injection site. Um, so they will test that little, that little pledge of tissue to see, oh, okay, so now we got enough of this drug to identify it. And so the route of entry is one of the places they will look. But as I said, the, the drug, the blood level is the one where the rubber meets the road. If you want to know that this chemical that you found at an injection site had anything to do with the death, you got to go look at the blood level because that's the bioavailable part. That is the active part. Is the level high enough to have done this, to have caused this person's death? Is it high enough? An example would be, uh, say, a young person is found overdosed in bed, a, a teenager, and and the cause of death looks like it's a suicidal, you know, overdose. And they, indeed, in the stomach, the, the, all these pills are in there and, you know, yada, yada. So you got it. Well, what if the blood level is very, very low? Well, then these drugs could not have gotten into the bloodstream to the amount to have caused the death. There's not enough there. Sure, there's a little present, but it's not up to potentially deadly levels. Now you got an enigma, and now you got to scratch your head and say, okay, what is going on here? Was this person sedated and then killed some other way? Or was this person given these drugs and then killed even before they were sedated? You know, you got to ask yourself those questions, and that's what the medical examiner, the police, and the toxicologist must do. So what do you see when you get a level of blood, a, a level of a drug in a blood? How do you interpret that? Well, there's a normal level. Normal level. We have arsenic. We have cyanide. We have lead. We have mercury. We have all that stuff in our bloodstream. And that's kind of background noise. We all have that. And it's just because these chemicals live in the environment. And, you know, they don't have to, you don't have to live next to a toxic waste dump. You can live anywhere. And these things are just part of life. But you, they're very low levels. They don't seem to do any harm. They've been that way for a long, long, long time. It's just part of being in the world. So you have very low levels of these chemicals. And so that's like the normal level. All right. Then that's what we call the therapeutic level. This is what your doctor will do when he gives you a drug. For example, we use digitalis uh, for certain cardiac rhythms and other things, and we will draw a blood level, and the blood level should be between 1 and 2. That's called the therapeutic range. Below that, it's supposed that it's not as effective, and above that, you're getting toward toxic levels. It's not that simple, and it's not always that accurate, but the point is is that there is a therapeutic level where you have taken a chemical into your body to achieve a desired effect, and that's the therapeutic effect, in other words, the treatment effect, and so that's that level. When that level gets higher, now you get to a toxic level, and this is where side effects can occur. 
with digitalis. It can be nausea and vomiting and a yellow, yellowish tinge to, uh, to your vision. It can be palpitations and cardiac rhythm changes. All of these things would be toxic side effects of digitalis. Not, not deadly, but not therapeutic. And the next level is lethal. Now, there is a uh, toxicological term called the LD50. It stands for lethal dose 50. And what that means is that if you gave a group of people this dose of this drug, 50% of them would die. So it's kind of like the average amount to kill people. So if you gave this dose to 100 people and 50 of them died, that would be the LD50. If only... 25 of them died, then it wouldn't be the LD50 level. You'd have to give more. So the LD50 is kind of a, a generic statement on the toxicity of a chemical. So you have normal levels, normal background noise. You have therapeutic levels. You have toxic levels which produce side effects. And then you have lethal le levels which are deadly. Um and this is critically important. Just because a drug is present does not mean it contributed to or caused the death. And it's not always black and white. The famous death of Kurt Cobain um, lays this out perfectly. And it is still a source of controversy in the forensic world. Kurt Cobain, as you know, was was a grunge singer up in Seattle and was married to Courtney Love and uh and 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 he was found dead in uh, the the apartment area above the garage at their house in the Seattle uh, area. Uh Courtney was out of the state. I think she was in California at the time when when he was found dead. And uh he had uh, apparently laying on the floor in this room with a shotgun under his chin and pulled the trigger. And so it was deemed a suicide. In the autopsy, he was found to have significant levels of heroin. Well, he was a heroin addict. He used heroin a lot. And then that's where the controversy came from, because he had very high levels of heroin. And the argument goes like this. One side says he had too much heroin in his system to have been able to operate a shotgun that he would basically be in a coma laying on the floor and someone else laid the shotgun on his chest and pulled the trigger. The shotgun was found laying on his chest, shot under, under the, under the jaw. Uh, and, and they just said he couldn't have done that. He could not have done that. And the other side says, well, wait a minute, he's a heroin addict. What that means is he tolerates much higher levels of heroin in the system than the average Joe. And so sure he had a high level, but you know, he could walk around with that. He could play, he could play, he could sing with that. He could do all that stuff because he did it all the time. So you can see how the determination of the level within the blood is not black and white. Sure. It reaches the LD 50 as it was, but it all depends on context and circumstance. And the Kurt Cobain case is a classic example of that. You can, there's a lot about it on the internet. You can read, read about and, and determine more about it. Then 
Let's talk about acute and chronic poisoning. Acute means you take it and you die pretty quickly, and chronic means it occurs over time. Now, the classic example of this is arsenic. Arsenic has been around for thousands of years, killing people, uh, mainly because it works uh, and mainly because it's disguised as a lot of other things. It can look like a gastrointestinal or a neurologic disease or a problem. And, uh, you know, back in the old days, it can be demonic possession. But the, the point is, is that it masks a lot of other things. If you take a huge, large dose of uh, arsenic, you will die in a few hours. Uh, it will also, though, typically erode the stomach and intestines, and they'll be bloody and, and damaged and beat up badly, and the medical examiner can see this. At autopsy, they would find a lot of arsenic in the bloodstream and a lot of arsenic in the stomach and all of these anatomical damage things. And then they could make it, th okay, this person overdosed on uh, arsenic. Now, then the whole question is, was it an accident? Was it suicide or was it homicidal? Because all the questions we, we talked about in the last discussion come into play here. But also arsenic is a cumulative poison. It takes a while to get out of the system. And you can absorb a little bit each day and the levels gradually rise and gradually rise and gradually rise and the symptoms become nausea and weakness and loss of appetite and weight loss and, and gastrointestinal symptoms and cramping and diarrhea and stuff and neurologic symptoms like, like numbness and tingling of, of the hands and feet and weakness and you know inability to walk straight and all of these things. And that's why it masks as GI or neurologic disease and is often overlooked even today so let's say the wife wants to do away with the husband and she has some arsenic and she just sprinkles a little bit in his oatmeal every morning and she does that for a couple of months until you know he he finally dies well let's say she does this for four or five weeks and then he's really having all these gi problems he goes to his doctor and his doctor puts him in the hospital for three or four days and does a bunch of tests and finds nothing because, well, they did not think of or test for arsenic. And so, uh, but he gets better. He's feeling better. Well, of course he's getting better. He's not getting his daily dose of arsenic. And so they sent him home saying, well, it was probably an ulcer. It was probably some kind of colitis. It was probably some virus, bug, whatever. And, you know, you're doing better. Thank goodness. So go home and have fun. And over the next three, four, five weeks, he gets sick again. And he finally dies. Okay. So now when they do the post-mortem exam, the autopsy, and they start testing for things and they find arsenic, they find evidence of it. They find some erosions in the gastrointestinal tract that are minor, not enough to cause vomiting and bleeding and all that, but it's enough to make the medical examiner say, well, wait a minute. So he tests for arsenic or maybe Someone comes forward and said, you know, their marriage is not that good, you know, and I loaned her some uh, rat poison and, you know, whatever. Good police work finally says, you know, maybe you ought to look at arsenic. And so now he finds arsenic in the blood. Okay. So what does he got to figure out now? Where did it come from? Who gave it to him? How did it get there? Okay. So you go to the hair and you take the hair grows about a centimeter a month. And so you, you cut off part of the guy's hair, you cut it up into centimeter things, you test each little segment for arsenic. And so you find that four months ago, it was normal, and then it rose, and then it fell, 
and then it rose again until he died. Well, when it fell was when he was in the hospital, and you can time that, because this gives you a timeline of exposure. Okay? It fell when he was in the hospital because his wife no longer had access to his food. He was eating hospital food. As bad as that can be, it's better than arsenic-laced food at home. So, this is pretty strong evidence that she, since she had access to his food intake, she was the meal preparer for the family, that she was the culprit here. And then the investigation goes on from there. So this is how the difference between acute and chronic poisoning is. And it's how the medical examiner and forensic toxicologist can come up with a timeline. And this is pretty powerful evidence. So here we've seen how it works, how the two-tiered system works, why we have screening tests, presumptive tests, as it were, and why we have uh, definitive testing, uh, a confirmatory testing, and why it's done this way to save money and time and to focus. And then we talked about how do you interpret the results, the blood level, the Kurt, Kurt Cobain thing, and then the difference uh, between the levels, whether it's normal, therapeutic, toxic, or lethal, and uh, then the difference between acute and chronic poisoning, and particularly how you can get a timeline with arsenic and the other, he other heavy metals. Now, the show notes on, on each of these episodes, and this, one, this one's no different, will be on my website and my blog, and you can go there and read about this in more detail. You can also go to Forensics for Dummies or How Done It Forensics and get those books, and this is discussed in much greater detail. So, this has been uh, Toxicology Part 2. Part 3 will be next time. Uh, I hope this proved useful to your storytelling, and just hope you found it fascinating. So until next time, this is uh, Criminal Mischief, the art and science of crime fiction, and this is D.P. Lyle, and I'll see you next time.